Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. If this is your first time listening to the show, let me introduce you to myself and this program. I'm K. Albert Little. I'm an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism. And this podcast is born out of one particular idea. See, it began for me when I was working for a non-denominational evangelical church, and the pastor asked me, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That question launched me into a long, deep study of church history. I looked into how the Bible was formed, how the way that I worshipped was developed, and how it all shook out the way it did. On that journey, I bumped into the ancient Catholic Church. It was inevitable, it is inevitable, in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. It was then, as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about what the actual Catholic Church actually taught, <laughs> I realized that what I thought I knew Catholics believed was oftentimes completely wrong. It was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I sit down with an influential Catholic thinker to talk about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by Andrew Pettiprin. Andrew is a former Episcopalian priest who became Catholic. He now works at the Word on Fire Institute with Bishop Robert Barron to bring you commentary and insight into cultural issues. His story, his conversion story that I can bring to you on this podcast this week is fantastic. We dig deep into why an Episcopalian priest, why somebody in that kind of a position would become Catholic, giving up everything he'd worked for, giving up his vocation in that sense, giving up his livelihood to become Catholic. Catholic. It's a great discussion. I think you'll love it. This podcast is brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic who help to keep this show going. And I have a new patron this week to thank. Thank you, Sergio, for your new fantastic support. You're the best. Thanks to all my patrons as well for helping to keep this show going. Thank you so much, guys, for your prayers, for your financial support as well. That's patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Thanks so much, guys. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic conversation with Andrew Pettiprin. Please listen and enjoy. Friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. Thanks for joining us. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome my guest, Andrew Pettiprin. He is a convert to the Catholic faith, a former Episcopal priest, and the author of Truth Matters, Knowing God and Yourself. He is also a fellow of popular culture at Bishop Barron's Word on Fire Ministries. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. Welcome, and hello. Hi, Keith. Thanks for having me here. Glad to be with you. 
Yeah, I think we're in for a great conversation here. I love these kinds of conversations, and especially when somebody like yourself has obviously made a very intentional decision to become Catholic. It's not as if you just fell into the faith out of the out of the Episcopal uh, priesthood into the Catholic faith. Obviously, a very intentional idea, a very intentional conversion. So these stories for me are oftentimes the most fascinating ones because you you have left something intentionally that was a difficult choice, I'm sure. Lots of thinking, lots of reflecting and praying and discerning. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out. I want to begin at the beginning though, if we can. And I want to know, what, how was your faith life growing up? Were you raised in an Episcopal household? Were you destined to be a priest from a very early age? What was faith like for you uh, growing up? Well, um, I, I'm excited to talk about this this journey and this story with you. You know, I I'm a runner, and I like to I like to think uh, in terms of kind of the metaphor of running towards the church. So for me, you know, I did leave something, and you know, I, I'm inspired by uh, St. John Henry Newman, who you know he wrote a novel called Loss and Gain around the time that he converted, and there. I, there were things that I lost, uh, that, that I left behind. There are things that are, um, you know, things to mourn, but so much more has been gained. And so when I think of the journey that I've been on in my life, it's, it's always been a running towards the church rather than a running away from, you know, my Protestant background and my Anglican background or my Episcopal priesthood. But the, the journey begins for me in um, a kind of mainstream Protestant home. We were we were Methodists for the most part, but my mother uh, was a, a very much a charismatic evangelical uh, who, um, even though we went to Methodist churches, she she was just personally very very invested in kind of the charismatic renewal movement, and so religion in our in our home was was really uh, certainly we were very active in church, but. Um, our home religion was really the most important thing. And so, you know, we, we sang songs, we prayed together as a family, we read Bible stories, all of that sort of thing. So there was never a time in my life when I didn't have a biblical imagination, when I didn't think in terms of the fact that God had created me and that Jesus had saved me and that the Holy Spirit had, uh, had, had filled me and inspired me and motivated me. So that, that was the foundation that never left. And, um, at, you know, as I grew up, we, we went to and from different churches. And, um, you know, sadly, my parents got divorced when I was 13. And that kind of shook the faith of our family for a while. We started going to a non-denominational church. This was kind of the, the early 90s, early kind of 1993, 1994. And um, a lot of that world was just really kind of taking shape. I know you you know a lot about that world, Keith. Um, and uh, it was very life-giving for our family in some ways, but it also was a time in my life when I was coming of age and I was, you know, I've always been interested in reading and, and exploring big ideas and all of that sort of thing. And so uh, there was a certain amount of like skepticism, a certain almost rebellion that, that started to well up in me at that time. Um, towards kind of the evangelical church. And so I went away to college and and was very interested in faith and read a lot. I read C.S. Lewis all the time. I read St. Augustine. I read all kinds of things. I read the Bible a lot. But I really wasn't sure where I belonged in in the church. And a big piece of that was really just not knowing who to trust. That's that question of authority. And, you know, I thought I had solved that problem when I became an Anglican in uh, 2002, I moved to England to, to do graduate work at Oxford, 
And um, I became, uh, I quickly, within a year of, of moving there, I was um, confirmed in the Church of England. And the, the group of people that I was hanging out with were very high church. You know, I mean, there were times when I, at, at first, and I should have known better, but there were times at first when I wasn't actually entirely sure that there was a Roman Catholic church in in the area where I was, because there were all of these beautiful college chapels and my friends were all so Catholic seeming and all of that. So, you know, I quickly learned that there was indeed a Roman Catholic church and all of that sort of thing. But, but anyway, I became an Anglican and there's a lot more pieces to that story. I eventually came back to the United States and, and then um, was eventually ordained an Episcopal priest and served in the Episcopal Church for uh, about eight and a half years uh, as an ordained minister before uh, finally kind of um, completing, you know, no journey in faith is complete, but completing a, a really the most important part of, of the journey uh, for me and for my family that we were able to come into full communion with the Catholic Church just at the beginning of 2019, not too long ago. I think, I mean, first of all, there's a lot to unpack there, and I want to get in, into the weeds in a few of those things for sure. I think, first of all, that you frame this as this idea of a race, of a destination, of a journey. I think that's really interesting because there are converts, there are people who become Catholic kind of out of a rebellion against their Protestant upbringing or as a protest against against Protestantism, for lack of a better word there. Uh, or they see certain things happening in their church and they are, are just drawn out of it because, well, I don't, you know, that's not this and I want to I be Catholic because of this reason. But it sounds, you know, in your case, and certainly in, in my case, I can re- I can definitely resound with what you're saying here. It's more of a journey towards something, even if you didn't know that destination was originally. It, there's definitely a, a journey kind of mentality there. And you see, as I saw, not becoming Catholic as just moving away from being Protestant here out of, out of a, a, a dislike of something that's happening here, but kind of as this organic kind of natural journey towards this thing that you were always looking for and then it, it was found over here and just took a little bit of a journey to get there is that fair to does that make any sense <laughs> i don't know if i'm i think that's right on that's exactly the way i think of it you know um i i um I, i've been struck for several years um even before i was catholic but certainly since becoming catholic by um bear with me for a second here but by, by the vision of the catechism of the catholic church which um, which Cardinal Ratzinger, before he was Pope Benedict XVI, described as um, an expression of reality. So in other words, it wasn't just like, here's a book that tells you what the church teaches. Like, here's, you know, like we're the biggest and best denomination and, you know, you really ought to you really ought to be with us. Rather, the, the vision is so much grander than that. It is it is articulating reality. And so then in the church's ecumenical posturing, it's able to say to Anglicans, to Protestants, to other people, they're able to say, look, you're not strangers to us because reality isn't an all or nothing proposition. Um, and the reason why this is so important to me is that the draw ultimately into the Catholic Church, especially in the last couple of years before we came into full communion, was was my my ability to hear the church saying to me, you have gifts we want you to bring with you into the church. We think you're getting a lot right. And we think there's so much more that that can happen with all of that if you come into full communion, if you join us, if you really buy into this vision that we're really all supposed to be one. 
Um, so for me then, looking all the way back to my earliest memories, it was it was always about this desire to live in reality, you know, for the desire for God that's written in my heart, the catechism says, you know, to, to find its fullest expression. And, you know, and so that's really what it's about. It's, it's coming into this fullness. And I think that people who convert or people who come into full communion with that mentality, with that sort of grace that has been given them, um, with that kind of um, enthusiasm in their heart for living in the truth, are people who I think have a much better time when they convert. Because, you know, there, there are people who come into the church and then they realize, oh, gosh, you know, there are a lot of the same problems here that we had in my old church, or, you know, there, there's a controversy here. What am I supposed to make of this? You know? And I, and I think a lot depends on, on where you are when you, when you decide to do that. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm just so grateful to God that, that there really was this long trajectory um, towards this, this desire to be in reality, uh, which is in the full communion of the church. Yeah, there's so, there's so much in there I want to unpack. And you put it so brilliantly, I think. You put it really well there, Andrew, with this idea that you are coming into this fullness. It's not just this different denomination you're joining. If that were the case, I mean, as Protestants, you and I move, you mentioned it in your story at the beginning here, we move through all kinds of different churches as Protestants. And it wasn't really that big of a deal. I mean, there are different parts of the world where if you are Anglican in, say, England, you are Anglican, and it's not easy to just to move around your, your Anglican church to a different denomination, right? There's, there are other places in the world where this is not as common, but I think here in North America, I think it's fairly common if you are a Protestant evangelical to kind of move churches, and it's not really that big of a deal. But becoming Catholic isn't just moving churches, right? There is this, this thing, you described the catechism so, I mean, the, the words of our, our Pope are, are so uh, illuminating there, it's so accurate, right? That this is this is reality, and we find a fullness in the Catholic Church. I'm thinking of, I mean, there's a lot I want to unpack here, but I'm thinking of my own journey. When I became, uh, I was kind of saved in high school, became an evangelical Christian, and even from an early age, even early on in my journey, there were things that didn't quite make sense to me. I encountered really early on this issue of Calvinism in my youth group, of all places. We were arguing about predestination and who was saved, who wasn't saved, this elect, and I realized even then, well, hey, we're all drawing from the same Bible. We're all just looking at different theologians' interpretations of the same Bible. How does this make sense? And there was something in that, even as a, a teenager, there were, you know, we went to our pastor, the pastor of the church, the head pastor, and he couldn't really give us a satisfactory answer over why we were right here and these guys were wrong, other than just kind of going over the same verses. So as a teenager, I felt like something was lacking here, and not that like, I don't want to bad talk my upbringing as a Protestant Christian. That upbringing was so important to me. It laid the foundation for me becoming Catholic. But when I became Catholic, there was this sense of a fullness of something. These these problems, these difficulties I had as an evangelical were suddenly solved so eloquently when I became Catholic. So there is that fullness, right, in that in that entering the Catholic Church, right? Even in those, you mentioned authority earlier on too, that that was a challenge for you. There is suddenly this fullness of becoming Catholic, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think that, that really embracing that idea is, is, so, is so helpful, especially in, in tough times in the church and as a Catholic. I remember I, I went to 
visit this really wise priest, Catholic priest, before, you know, shortly before we, we made the leap and came into full communion. And, and he we had a wonderful conversation. And at the end of it, he said, look, Andrew, I do want you to know this, that the, the Catholic Church can be perfectly awful, but it's the real deal. <laughs> and I think it's, again, that it's that reality, you know, and it's that the, the idea then of truth too, you know, um, St. John Henry Newman says in um, the essay on the development of Christian doctrine, something along the lines of that um, if you don't have a living authority, if you don't have the Pope, um, then it's difficult to find, but even more difficult to keep the truth because you have all these different rival teachers, right? Um, so the Catholic Church, despite its problems, has a living authority, and it is it is absolutely essential that we do. Um, that's that rock of Peter, right? It's it's the rock um, that that isn't just a, a kind of metaphor for faith. It is it is a person to 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 teach and to and to guard the truth that uh, that we all share as Catholics. Yeah, I think of that reality. I was coming into the church. Uh, just kind of one of the one of the abuse scandals was breaking as I was looking at joining the church, and somebody said to me, well-meaning, they said, "Are you sure you want to join this church? I mean, look at look at the state of the church right now. Do you want to enter into this? Are you comfortable with this?" And like you said, my response was kind of, "You know what? It's no, it's not perfect. It's not. It's it's made of people too, but you know, if we believe." what the Catholic Church says that it is. If you believe that it is what it says that it is, and this can be traced out for all kinds of different reasons, and different converts have different ways of looking at this historically or theologically or from, from the scriptures or a combination of all those different ways. If it is what it is, yeah, there are problems, but it is still the best place to be. So I want to kind of look a bit deeper into your story here. So you, I want to know first, what drove you to become uh, a priest? What was the first calling to the priesthood when it began? You mentioned going to Oxford, being kind of um, kind of uh, immersed in this environment of the Anglican Church. You came out of a non-denominational context, right, before you were there. So I want to know first, what was the draw towards Anglicanism? And then wh- where did your call to the priesthood come from there? Yeah. Well, my call to Anglicanism, I think, was very much rooted in my, um, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, my desire to be an intellectual person of faith. And and I, I want to be careful how I say that. I, I mean, I think that the word intellectual is a is a good word. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, but I, I definitely wasn't interested in being a snob or, you know, lording over people that I knew more than they did. But I definitely wanted a thoughtful religion. I wanted a, I wanted a faith that was clearly the possession of people who are a lot smarter than I am. And so there was something about Anglicanism that satisfied that for me. And I have to say, and I don't like you, I don't want to beat up on my past um, religion, but there was something that contrasted very sharply about that with my non-denominational church background. And I, it, it's the height of arrogance for me to say now, but there were there were times when listening to my pastor that, I mean, it, it's something as basic as just like he, he would use bad grammar or whatever it would be. And I would think like, how can I take this guy seriously? Like, how can I, how can I really trust that he is going to tell me the truth? Um, so that was, that was a part of it. And in Anglicanism, I, I found a group of friends who were, uh, well, I mean, in, in this particular Anglican context that I was in, in England, um, I found this group of friends who were so thoughtful, who were so cultured and interesting and who also 
got up every morning and went to the Holy Eucharist and every evening came back together and listened to choral evensong and and um, lived this almost sort of quasi-monastic life in this university context. And that's that's a rarity in England or anywhere, but it just happened to be the world that I that I came into, the world that the Lord called me into. You know, I'd always been a huge admirer of C.S. Lewis. The college that I that I was able to attend at Oxford was Maudlin College, Oxford, which was Lewis's college. And so, you know, he was he was someone I trusted. He was someone that I felt like if I was in his space, in his church, in a, in a manner of speaking, then I was safe. You know, I felt uh, a huge admiration for T.S. Eliot and for kind of other sort of 20th century thinkers like that. Um, so I felt very at home in Anglicanism. And I have to say that for a long while, too, I felt at home in Anglicanism because it didn't make me completely abandon my Protestant upbringing. And it didn't make me commit to things like the supremacy of the Pope and all of that that stuff, which I had just instinctively in me as something that was not right. Um, now, thanks be to God, I, I came around to to seeing that it was and actually lived for years as an Anglican, believing that that was true. Um and, and that full communion was what God desired of me and my family. But, but you know, you get going with the ministry, which, you know, as so I, I moved back to America and um, I, I began attending the Episcopal Church. I got married at that time. And, you know, there was just sort of a lot going on in my life. And I was really at a crossroads trying to figure out what it was the Lord was calling me to do. Um, the doors kept opening to, to pursue ordination in the Episcopal Church. And I was able to go off to divinity school and then, um, I was made a deacon in the Episcopal Church uh, and, and a priest in 2010 and um, served a wonderful congregation in my hometown of Orlando, Florida. And a lot was going on in my heart during that time, you know, especially when you're kind of growing a church and you have this sort of inkling that actually the Catholic Church is where you're supposed to be. You know, there was a real torment uh, going on because you think to yourself, well, I want this church to grow. I want to succeed. I want people to come to know the Lord. And at the same time, I was thinking to myself, but is this the right place? Is this where this is supposed to be happening? Um, so I struggled with that for a while and then ended up taking a position on the bishop staff at the Episcopal Diocese of Tennessee, where I didn't have my own church. I had a lot of responsibility, uh, but it was during that time, that two year plus period where the Lord really, really went to work big time and where the grace just poured out on me, making it very, very clear that it was time to to come home, for lack of a better word, to kind of uh, carry that journey on. And that happened in a variety of ways. One of them was I, I sort of accidentally ended up in this. I say accidentally, I, I just kind of ended up in this um, ecumenical reading group with a couple of nuns from the uh, from the Dominican community in Nashville and with a Catholic priest and a Catholic layman theologian. And then there were a group of us Episcopalians who were in this group, Anglicans who were in this group. And I was just bowled over by the faith, by the, 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 you know, honestly, Keith, it was the, the, the cordiality, you know, for your, your podcast, the cordial Catholic, (laughs) they were so cordial. They were so, their hearts were so big. And this one nun in particular um, sort of started the first session that we did together by walking us through some of the documents of Vatican II. We read the the document Dei Verbum on Revelation together. And then we read Pope St. John Paul II's Ut Unum Sint, his his, um, encyclical on, on ecumenism. And I have to say, you know, the Episcopalians who were sent to this, this study group were really meant to 
try to articulate why we, you know, what we were about and why it was a, a good idea to be an Anglican. And, and I was just totally bowled over by the fact that that every that the people on the other side of the table were the people that I was called to be with. Um, and, you know, it was just that incredibly generous welcome. And at the same time, it, it just didn't make any sense. I, you know, the, the Lord had moved us from Florida to Tennessee. We didn't know anybody in Tennessee. I just went there to take this position. We loved it there. But um, I was working on the bishop staff. I had a lot of responsibility. It was sort of just at this moment when in terms of like, you know, even though I was working for the church, in terms of worldly status, things were really looking good for me. I was making a good salary. We had bought our first home, you know, all these kinds of things. And it was in light of all of this that I came home one day and said to my wife, I, th- I think this is the time. I think, you know, this is something we've talked about and prayed about and wondered about for a long time. And I, I know this is where we're headed. So, you know, that was uh, it, that that was hard. You know, that that was a, a, a tumultuous time in the life of our family and for me to try to figure out what I was supposed to be doing. Um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm a layman now. I, I don't I don't wear a collar. I'm, I don't uh, I'm, I'm not involved in ministry like I was before. And and happily so. I believe like I have a vocation now as a layman in the Catholic Church, writing and teaching and speaking and all of that sort of thing. But it was a big change to 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 you know move away from what I felt for several years, for a lot of years, was a calling. So that's a lot more information there for you. But uh, you know the, these journeys have lots of twists and turns to them. <laughs> that's fantastic. I want to start with the comment you made about your non-denominational context because this is the fascinating thing for me, and this certainly was a draw for me towards the Catholic Church. Was Anybody can start a church in the Protestant world, really. I mean, there are denominations, but anybody can start a church and call it non-denominational. In fact, in most denominations, anyone can kind of start a church with a little bit of uh, leading from the Spirit, right? Whether rightly or wrongly. I mean, I can't judge that. But really, it's very easy to begin a church in the non-denominational and the Protestant world. And so, your experience of a non-denominational church, if that... You are, in a sense, as you said, trusting this person who's been put there in front of the congregation, in front of this church. You're trusting them to know how to unpack the scriptures correctly, how to teach correctly, that their theology is right. I mean, in a denomination, you have a little bit of a kind of a, a safety net. That denomination's really thought out often their, their belief system, their kind of doctrine and theology. But in any case, you know, in the Protestant world, especially the evangelical world, you have these churches that have far less uh, thought-out faith statements, where in the end, you're really relying on the pastor of that church to teach you rightly. And if this pastor is making you feel uncomfortable, you're not really sure about it, they're teaching rightly or not, often the case, and you know this too, you just go down the street to a different church. You find a different church that you say, well, this church is probably teaching the Bible a bit more accurately than this church. But ultimately, and this is what I found, this is I'm sure what you found, what many converts find, we are making ourselves the arbiter of what's being taught correctly or incorrectly. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been said by by much much smarter and more influential people than I am, but it, it remains so true that, you know, if you don't have a pope, then every man's his own pope. And, um, you know, you see this in such a, an interesting way in, in mega churches. And again, I don't want to, I don't want to just beat up on them. I, I, I don't, and I hope that they won't find it patronizing for me to say, I think that for a lot of people, they are really good kind of way stations towards the Catholic church for a lot of the reasons that you've already been talking about. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
you, you come to, you come to a place where you're thinking about what's being taught and, and, um, you think, well, what is the authority behind this person's authority? Or what is the authority behind me as the interpreter of this person's teaching as well? You know, you, you, it's all, it's all sort of fragmented and atomized. It's not done. It's not done in unity really. Um, and, and, you know, that's what happens when you, when you, when you don't have a living authority in the Pope and when you don't have this vibrant sense of the sacredness of tradition either, um, where you don't believe, you know, as Dei Verbum teaches that, that sacred scripture and sacred tradition sort of come from the same divine wellspring. Um, it, it's very unsettling now for me to, to think back to my time in evangelical churches and just think, you know, from week to week, you're not even sure what the worship experience is going to be like. Um, it's, it's so detached. It's so detached from kind of the, the richness of, of tradition um, that it is just so difficult to know. And so then, you know, you reach a crisis point, And then, as you say, you just kind of take your ball and go home, you know, or you go find a different game. Right. <laughs> and, and that surely is not the way the church is meant to be. It's, it just can't be. Well, it seems like for you that, you know, you took your ball and looked for a more intellectual tradition that had things kind of more thought out. I mean, I can think, too, as I was looking into into because the question for me that a, a pastor posed to me was, you know, what's more important the Bible or tradition? And I hadn't even thought of tradition as a thing at this point. I was in a non-denominational church. Tradition was one of these things the Pharisees did, right? So when he asked that question, I had to begin looking at the, kind of the roots of my faith and things I really should have known at that point as a Christian. But I looked at the Anglican Church and thought, well, here is something that has a much uh, longer tradition, much more historical, much more rooted in something that it's been this thing for a long time. It doesn't change from week to week. It doesn't change. You know, you can't just go plant a new church and say, this is my church. There's more of a historical tradition there. Now, for me, I ended up becoming Catholic. And I, I, I looked deeper into that tradition, you know, where's the, what's the root of this thing here, and found the Catholic Church. Was that a sense for you that you were, you've mentioned you're looking for a more intellectual tradition. Was it a sense that the Anglican tradition was then that much more rooted than your evangelical experience? Yeah, for sure. You know, I think about uh, T.S. Eliot's line about um, you are here to kneel where prayer has been valid, he says. And, you know, he was an, he was an Anglican, a high churchman. And, you know, I really believed, especially in those early years as an Anglican, that, you know, I had never worshipped in a medieval building before. And suddenly I was doing that every day. And and it felt real. It felt old. And there was a kind of authenticity about that that was that was really exactly what I was looking for and refreshing. I felt like I was kneeling where prayer had been valid. And in fact, it had been valid there. Uh, however, the problem that I discovered with Anglicanism pretty quickly is, is one that, um, again, much greater theological minds than I have articulated. But the problem with Anglicanism is... It requires a theory. It, it, it's, it's always aspiring to be a church or aspiring to be the church in some particular way. It's always sort of balancing out the different, the different parties. It's sort of wrestling with its, its historical rootedness in English society or its attachment to the state. You know, it's got all of these things sort of going on. And this is something that Newman and the 19th century Tractarians, the Oxford Movement guys, New and and they were determined to sort of try and like articulate this theory to a nation that that really was it, it identified sort of stirred with this kind of grace right but but Newman Newman really ran out of road with that you know he says in the in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua 
his his uh, kind of spiritual memoir, he says, um, thinking about the the ancient church and the some of the old controversies, the monophysite controversy. He said, I looked in the mirror and I saw a monophysite. Like he saw somebody who like was connected to the church, but just wasn't quite in it. You know, just wasn't quite attached to it in the in that full way. And his theories were never going to get him into that. You know, that what would be required of it would be to like, as I said, sort of keep running the race to the finish line, to keep to keep going where the Lord was was drawing him. So, yeah, that's a long roundabout way of saying, you know, definitely in Anglicanism, I found this sort of um, intellectual richness, but it had to give way uh, on some level to the again, the reality of the church. You know, it wasn't a theory. I was called to kneel where prayer had been valid, but it turned out there was kind of an even fuller way to do that than I was doing as an Anglican. <laughs> yeah, the the issue of the church is uh, is a big deal, right? Because we are looking for, and I was looking for as a convert, kind of this church that Christ founded. And as an evangelical, evangelical listeners will understand this, and Catholics will too, there is this dimension of the body of Christ, of the church, that's invisible. We're all connected in this kind of spiritual sense. But I came to realize, and it sounds like you came to realize this too, and have since obviously come to realize this, that there also needs to be this kind of physical, real, tangible, seeable, like I have to see this visible, I guess it's the right word, <laughs> seeable, I don't think it's the word, a visible church that exists too. And that dimension that has to exist somewhere because Christ took his apostles aside and he started that. So where did that go? Was that a sense for you as you began to ask questions about the Anglican tradition? Absolutely. I mean, you know, for me, I felt like a dummy on some level because I I would think to myself, you know, for all my years as as an evangelical, as a Protestant, taking the Bible so seriously, supposedly, why did I not see that the Catholic Church is there in Acts, right? I mean, that's the visible church. They're not talking about some invisible church. They're talking about growing the community, getting people baptized, you know, filling them with the Holy Spirit, all these things, right? It's ordered in a particular way. Peter's the one giving the speech, right? And so on and so on. Um, And then it just sort of carries on from there. You know, when I was in divinity school, I fell in love with patristics. I fell in love with reading the church fathers. And, you know, there's always been this kind of, especially Anglicans have tended to love the church fathers. It's it's been kind of something that Anglicans have, have tended to be pretty good at for at least a couple centuries, like being kind of on the vanguard and to this day of kind of being patristic scholars. You know, and and part of that, I think, is this desire, again, this kind of theoretical church out there that you can identify if you go back far enough into church history. But then there's this sort of lacuna in the middle where things kind of went wrong and then this thing called the Reformation needed to happen. Well, no, I mean— you know, no, if you if you really if you really are serious about the church present in Acts and the church that the fathers were a part of, that church developed right on through the centuries, even through, you know, difficult times, dark times, whatever it may be, right down to the present day and the authority of the present pope who is who is in Rome. Well, this was this was a thing for me too, because once I realized I mean, I was so poorly schooled in patristics and in the history of the early church that I just assumed but as it turns out, lots of evangelicals are in the same camp that I was in, so I don't feel too badly. The, the, the Church of Acts kind of just, that's how it looked, and it kind of grew haphazardly, and, and it was these people meeting in small little, little home churches, and that kind of just grew organically, and there wasn't any kind of real leadership or guidance, and, and 
you know, maybe there was, but it got kind of corrupted. And what we called the Catholic Church was this corruption. And I mean, (laughs) as soon as I began to read anything into the early church fathers, you realize immediately that they talk about people called bishops, and they talk about an order of service and the Eucharist, and they have these clear beliefs in things and a clear structure that develops actually in the book of Acts itself, which was shocking for me. You you mentioned, and this is a common theme too in, in conversion stories, that we both read our Bibles very closely, but somehow missed all this aspect of, of the Catholic Church. I mean, the, the word, there are bishops, there are presbyters, there are deacons, there are people writing and speaking authoritatively to correct other churches and to guide churches in right doctrine. There are things like laying on of hands and passing on of traditions. But somehow, as an evangelical, I missed all of these things when I read, you know, when I read Acts. But it's right there. It's right there. And it's very obvious. And it didn't look, this was the shocker for me. It didn't look like my non-denominational church. It looked like this institutional, structured Catholic church that sure had made all kinds of mistakes down throughout history, but that resembled most closely the framework that was started by Christ. I mean, Christ, he, he, he breathed on the apostles and said, here, you know, this is me. The, the ideas there are, are so rich and so obvious when you begin to look at it through this lens, but we didn't have any kind of lens, anything like that when we read that as evangelicals. Yeah. And, you know, even, even in the Old Testament, right? Uh, you know, it's, you know, there's anointing, there's, you know, there's all kinds of religion and, you know, obviously it, it sort of is fulfilled in the church, but I mean, it's, it's a strange kind of, it's a strange kind of Christianity that point that can look at the Old Testament and not see, that we're supposed to be that the church is in continuity with that too, you know, like like it's all supposed to be a sort of disorganized personal thing, you know. Um, that that personal thing is uh, is is very strange. It's uh, I, I just don't really think you're going to find that much in the Bible. I mean, you're certainly going to find that uh, God loves you. Uh, as you, and that you're called to love others as others, right? We are individuals, sure. But the church is not a bunch of individuals' opinions. It's not not any man's um, interpretation. I want to unpack a bit more here the idea of this theory of the church, because even as an evangelical, I had a theory of what the church was. um, And I'm sure anyone listening to this program who's not a Catholic has a theory of what the church is. Whether it, I mean, obviously we're talking here about it corresponding with what we see as the church in Acts of the Apostles. And certainly my evangelical church did not correspond with that. It was started by a guy who started a church and had a board of kind of directors. And it wasn't this hierarchy, it wasn't passed on, it wasn't, you know, associated with the apostles, it wasn't that clear lineage. But then there also exists this idea that, as you said, the church may have existed like this, being passed on apostle to, you know, apostle to disciple and to a bishop and to a bishop and passed down in a clear structure, but somehow it became corrupted and the Reformation kind of restarted that. So the Anglican church would stand in kind of that tradition uh, as this church that kind of maybe reset this ancient church. And I know I know there's a certain strand of of... Uh, Anglo-Catholicism, Anglo-Catholic um, believers, who would point to like this idea that, well, this this church stands in continuity with this original church, and okay, the church is kind of broken apart, but we can't just say, you know, as you did, as I did, just go go home to Rome and all will be well, because that's not the answer, that's not the solution here. I mean, I found it to be 
a solution. My my theory of a church was to find the church that closely resembled the, the original church, and I found it in the Catholic Church. You know, you trace out all kinds of things, you know, history, lineage, theology, the magisterium, the, uh, the succession of the bishops, the, the pope in Rome. Where were you on this question of finding this church? And maybe I should ask it this way. Why wasn't it okay for you just to remain outside of the Catholic Church in a tradition that, you know, was still part of this larger body of Christ, but wasn't under the authority of, of the Pope? Yeah, I would answer that a couple of different ways. One definitely is theologically, and it is informed by this experience that I told you about um, reading ecumenical documents with with these very brilliant nuns and other Catholics, and, and others in years prior to that. You know, just really buying into the, the vision that there are elements of sanctification and truth in bodies of Christians outside the structure of the church. Yeah. But that the fullness of those things is in the church and always has been. And that that's a, a claim that, that Christ himself um, requires of us uh, by requiring our unity, by praying for our unity. Um, so it's just not good enough theologically to say, well, you know, it, it, we're 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 not in the same we're not in the same church, but you know we we can sort of identify how we're we're all really just fine. You know we all sort of have our own we all we all have our own way of doing things, but we're all we're all the church. And oh, maybe there's this like invisible church anyway, and maybe some of us are in it, maybe some of us are not. That kind of thing. So I I, I so that's sort of the theological uh, point that I found utterly convincing. The other piece is is more personal and pastoral and. You know, for me, again, this is always about running towards the church rather than running away from my previous denomination. However, it was very disconcerting to to be increasingly involved in in gatherings in in you know in in situations in my ministry where I was observing discussions and even votes on basic things about the Christian faith. And, you know, I, the the final straw for me on this one, and I had pretty much already decided to come into full communion with the Catholic Church when this happened, but it was in the summer of 2018. I was at the General Convention of the Episcopal Church um, representing my diocese, and it was it was just uh, – it, it, didn't, it didn't make me angry. I think I was past that. It just kind of made me sad and, and more resolved to do what I knew the Lord was calling me to do, to see these level of discussions about – you know, some of the basic things about the faith that could just be changed with a vote. You know, surely that is not uh, not what our Lord had intended. So, so again, you know, when you have a living authority, when you have a magisterium, when you have, you know, when you have a church um, that has a teaching authority, then you know, there, there are all kinds of problems, but they're not on the same level as what I was witnessing, where what was up for grabs are some of the very basic some of the very basic things. Um, so for that reason, you know, the that just really highlighted that that the church that I belonged to, that the ecclesial group that I belonged to was was aspirational. It was always sort of like trying to be something else. And it was clear to me that it was going really in the wrong direction. It wasn't going in the direction of being what I believed the Lord was calling it to be. Um, and, you know, at the same time, then the church was was making 
all kinds of, of new gestures in through, for example, the ordinariates um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the rich um, ministry of Pope Benedict XVI and, and others carried on to this day of, of being able to welcome groups into the Catholic Church with some of what the Church, the Catholic Church identifies as authentic pieces of patrimony. And it's the Catholic Church that identifies those things, not those groups, which is one of the wonderful things. You know, the Catholic Church is able to say, ah, we're looking at you. We're seeing what you're doing. We like this a lot. We like that a lot. And these are all pieces of that sanctification and truth that we know exists in your in your group. So um, that's kind of a roundabout way of, of saying why I just didn't think it was tenable for me to stay outside the church, um, even with, at times, a, a well-developed theory for how you could do that. Well, you mentioned, too, and mentioned this earlier, the idea that the Catholic Church sees things in these groups, that it says, yes, it affirms these things. I think it's really important to hear that. It's not as if you're becoming Catholic and being told everything you believe, the way you worship, the way you structured your service, the things, the traditions that you held to be very, very important as an Anglican are suddenly canceled, you know. But it's not as if the Catholic Church is saying you must abandon these things. It's saying, no, these are good things. And the ordinary, you know, we had Father James Bradley on this program a few episodes ago, and I encourage listeners to go back and listen to that interview as well. He, he, uh, he is also an Anglican priest who entered via the ordinariate and continues now as a Catholic priest. And he, he's a fantastic story. It's really interesting. And he explains in great detail the beauty and the, the, the power in the Catholic Church affirming the Anglican tradition and allowing that to continue in the ordinariate in the Catholic Church. But like you say, it, that's important to underscore, that the Catholic Church sees in these groups something so, so valuable, and you're not abandoning your, your heritage, you're not ab- abandoning your patrimony to become a Catholic. It's, it's a, full, a fuller embrace of that. You bring that with you, but you embrace everything else that the Church says, here's everything else we've always believed, and now you can stand in this stream, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and I hope more Catholics will talk that way, just you know, in their day to day lives, and in and with their their non Catholic friends. You know, uh, it, it it to me doesn't seem like a very good evangelism strategy uh, to uh, to bang on about uh, everything that's wrong about uh, non Catholics. Uh, I mean, you know, my goodness, there are some Catholics who bang on about what's wrong with other Catholics, and you know. Who am I to judge them? But it, it, it doesn't seem like the best strategy for a world looking into the church and wondering what it's about. And to me, you know, the church's teachings are are sort of overwhelming uh, from the last several decades that there is there is much that's valuable in in other traditions. And, you know, I can just speak for myself personally, just feeling so welcome when I finally came to understand that, that the church wasn't saying to me, you're all wrong. The church was saying, you got, you're doing a lot right. Now come on, come on with us. Just keep coming. <laughs> yeah, it's the difference, I think, between saying, oh, you guys do communion and it's just a symbol and it's just silly and it's just grape juice. It's, it's that versus saying, hey, you know what? We believe that this thing, communion, exists, but look how much richer it is over here. Come over here and experience our deep, ancient theology of this thing that we believe Jesus instituted here's how much more you can have in this tradition, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm curious to know, okay, so 
I guess a little pushback might be to say, well, you experienced this kind of voting on on doctrine in the Episcopal Church. And certainly I've had other guests on this on this show who experienced that kind of same thing. And, and for them too, looking at the Catholic Church was a natural, like, well, I'm uncomfortable with us voting on, on changing tradition. A, a Protestant might push back and say, well, don't the bishops in Rome, don't they vote in a similar way on different ideas? And, you know, we've seen this, the whole looking at the Catholic Church, looking at the Roman Catholic Church meeting there in the Vatican, it seems like it seems very bureaucratic. So how would you answer that pushback, I wonder, Le- leaving one kind of bureaucratic voting body of, of, say, Episcopal bishops and lay people and clergy voting on things and becoming Catholic, where it's, well, it's just another body of people voting on something. How would you meet that pushback? Yeah, well, I, I would. I would first of all say, you know, there was a reason I was reluctant to articulate that that kind of second reason for why I didn't feel like it was a tenable thing for me to remain an Anglican, because I, I do recognize that that there are, you know, again, my friend, uh, my priest friend, told me that that the Catholic Church at times is perfectly awful, but it's the real deal. So sure, there are all kinds of things that are that are troubling that may that may be along those same kind of lines, just done in a in a somewhat different way. The thing that I would say though is again, I think theology helps a, a great deal. And I know I've talked a lot about St. John Henry Newman. I'm sure a lot of your other guests do as well. We just we can't help it. But um, you know, I think this is this is where his genius is so valuable. And this is why his articulation of the development of doctrine is um, is truly one of the most important teachings in recent recent times in the church. You know, to, to understand that the church, of course, has certain, you know, develops in certain ways, um, but it does so within within a framework. It's not always discernible or detectable, but but I can promise you, it's it's different and and in a good way, uh, much better than what. I saw when I was uh, when I was with my old Episcopalian colleagues. Um, you know, in the Catholic Church, we're always we're always staying we're always staying connected to that those original living things, those things that are developing naturally. And you know, so I don't know all of the ins and outs of all the, the the bureaucrats in the Vatican and all of that sort of thing, and and who votes on what or what should be or shouldn't be voted on or whatever. But I do know that um, we have the whole faith. We have it. And um, that that isn't that isn't going away. Uh, it hasn't gone away all these many centuries, and it isn't going away. Yeah, and there's something in there. I don't know if you sense this too. I'm sure that you do. This is something that a lot of guests in the show and I've tried to articulate for a long time as well as a convert. The idea that you become Catholic and there's suddenly this vast tradition you are entering, and with that comes this kind of a a safety net in a sense. You no longer have to figure out, okay, so out of all these different denominations, different traditions, even within, say, the Anglican Church, who is voting on the right thing? Which which bishop do I think is voting in the more, most orthodox way that's most in line with the tradition we've held as Anglicans since, you know, the Reformation? You don't have to kind of pick and choose your theologians. You don't have to kind of pick and choose who you're lining up with in your denomination or your church. You don't have to move churches if your doctrine doesn't line up with something that your church is doing. You know, I'm thinking of on the issue of uh, of gender and sexuality. This was kind of brewing a bit in my non-denominational church early on in my journey and I was looking for kind of an answer. And I, I ended up on that kind of question as the church also was kind of searching out what to do. 
I ended up just looking at different theologians, and I realized in the end, I was just weighing the opinions of different theologians to figure out what I believe to be the best interpretation of the Bible. When I became Catholic, suddenly I am kind of plunked into this great big ocean, uh, this, this stream, or what have you, where I don't have to figure out what I believe in all these different issues and research it myself and read all the best theologians. I can do that. I can spend a lifetime doing those things, and I, and I have been doing that, as it turns out. But I can also rest in the knowledge that if the church is who it says it is, it has these things figured out. And I can trust, I can lean back into that tradition and trust that that is the right way of believing this thing. I don't have to say, oh, I believe on this issue, this. I can say, you know what? The Catholic Church believes this. And as a Catholic, I'm, I'm in that stream. Now, I can do more research, of course, right? But there's a, there's a distinct difference in that. Uh, do you feel this similar? Did you, did, you, did you feel similar when you, you know, converted? Yes. I, to me, the Catholic Church is where the, where the notion of faith-seeking understanding really can happen. Because when you know that you're within um, this ancient tradition that has been articulated so profoundly down to the present day, if you open up the Catechism of the Catholic Church, I think people would just be amazed, non-Catholics who haven't read the Catechism, to just see the way the Catholic Church reasons through all of these, all of these things. So, you know, so faith, faith is a gift. It, it's a gift that we grow in as Catholics. And so, yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily even have to have a well-formed opinion about everything. We certainly do want to take seriously the call upon all of us to be able to give an account of the, the hope that we have within us, right? I mean, we, we, we need to be able to have some kind of a good word to say. Um, but do we have to have it all figured out in our brains? No. And, you know, so for me, I, you know, I know a friend an Episcopal priest friend who, you know, I, I know quite a few of my former colleagues have reached out to me and said, you know, maybe maybe I'm headed in that direction. I don't know or whatever. But one of them in particular said something so interesting to me. He said, you know, I think if I had a whole lifetime to read, I would be able to read my way into the Catholic Church. And, and his reasoning was, well, you know, I, I just need to get clear on all of these, you know, on all of these things. Right. So I need to sort of consult all of these different things before I take the leap. And I said to him, hey, look, I totally get where you're coming with that, but I just don't think that's the way it works. You know, I think that that your your coming into communion will be a, a kind of indescribable experience of grace and you will come in and then you can start doing that reading. Then you can start then you can spend the rest of your life figuring out some of these things that the church teaches. It's not to say that we should be ignorant. And, you know, it's great that we have these programs for people who want to come into the church to learn the basic parts of doctrine and all of the RCIA or whatever it may be. Um, but are you going to have it all figured out? Absolutely not. I don't have everything figured out. In fact, you know, I, I'm still, I'm still kind of marveling at things that when, when we came into the church, I thought, you know, I don't really get that, but I'm just coming in anyway. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just been amazing to see the Lord show me what, what these things mean, like how these things work or provide an insight here or there. That's, that's a life of faith, you know? I mean, that, that's why the church is, is, stands ready to equip us in that way. Yeah, I can think of, I had uh, Dr. John Bergsma on the program uh, very recently, a couple times actually, and he, he was a, uh, is a biblical scholar, um, does incredible work in the Old Testament on the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he was a Reformed pastor for a number of years. And he ended up just reading 
the Antinicene church fathers. Like he got a couple of fathers in. These are the guys that followed the apostles, which of course, as for me, I had no idea they existed for much of my, my, my Christian life, that there was writings that immediately followed the authors of the New Testament that we have access to. He read um, some of those and almost immediately realized he had to become Catholic when he read that, you know, Ignatius of Antioch talking about, you know, where the bishop is and where the Eucharist is, there is the church. And he said to me, and when I read that, you know, I became Catholic. And you figure out kind of everything else afterwards. So once you realize that this, the Catholic Church is this thing, is the church that Christ founded and has continued on since then, you can just join the church if you believe that, if you trust that. Because if the church is, again, what it says it is, it does have everything else figured out. You have to choose to trust that authority. But I experienced the same thing that you experienced and that Dr. Bergsma experienced. When you join that thing, you realize how much you know, depth there is in there. I didn't even know about, say, theology of the body when I became a Catholic, but you begin to scratch the surface of this teaching from John Paul II, and you realize there's just crazy depth in in who we are as humans and how that fits into the creation narrative and everything. I mean, I, I once joked that the reason why uh, only men are ordained as priests in the Catholic Church is the same reason, flows from the same theology, why we don't believe contraception is valid. All these things are intertwined together in who the person is. And that's just one aspect of Catholic teaching, the theology of the body. You, you discover these things oftentimes after you become a Catholic, right? You can't necessarily read all these things first and then go, yep, 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 that's all right you're making yourself this, the same authority you would have been if you were a Protestant, if you approach it that way in a sense, right? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, and sometimes it's not just like difficult things like, you know, contraception or, you know, uh, you know, various like sexuality questions or things like that. Sometimes it, they're like, like sort of refreshing things that you kind of didn't know the church was about as well. Like I, I've been working on, I work on more on culture and like film and music and all kinds of stuff like that now from a Catholic perspective. And I remember the first time I read um, St. John Paul II's uh, letter to artists from 1999, he talks about, he talks about how not only do artists need the church, but the church needs artists, right? It's this like incredibly, it's this incredibly um, generous gesture to creative people who are outside of the church. You know, this idea that like the church isn't some like, you know, stuffy old, you know, thing that just wants to tell people what to do. It's like the church is like open to, to the best ideas that are, are out in the world, you know, and like we process them through the lenses of our, of our doctrine and all that sort of thing. But it's like, it's anything but this sort of you know, stuffy, you know, killjoy kind of tell you what to do sort of faith. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm thinking, too, of a convert I spoke to, Sonia Corbett, a few weeks back, who talked about, as a Catholic then, encountering different issues and in conversations with, say, non-Catholic Christians who be critical of the faith the faith's stance on something and say, well, doesn't the church believe this? And isn't that a little sketchy? And she would go and pull out the catechism, concerned that the church wouldn't have spoken on this or wouldn't have a good answer. And time after time, she articulates this idea of, you realize the church, hey, has had 2,000 years. This goes back to Newman, right? I mean, the idea that the church has had this time, you know, the, the, the deposit of faith was given to the church, and it's had time to kind of unpack what we believe. This very real sense of this thing has been handed on, this church that Christ founded, and keeps being handed on, and does develop 
But it's not as if the church hasn't thought through these things, doesn't have an answer to these things. The church has so many robust answers. I often say this, you, whether or not people who want to listen to this podcast or, or, or read Catholic authors or whatever become Catholic, they have to know, and this is important to underscore, that the Catholic Church does have good answers to all these questions. Whether you accept it or not, that's a different, that's a different uh, animal, right? But the church does have good answers for all of these things. And my experience, probably your experience too, is more often I go to the catechism or look at the writings of the popes or the encyclicals. These answers are out there and they're profound answers time and time again, right? Absolutely. And they're, they're anything but, like I said, they're anything but facile, you know? I mean, they're, they're nuanced. They're, they, they, they acknowledge the fact that lots of people have been struggling with lots of the same things for many, many centuries. And so there's just no person with any issue out there that has something on their mind or their heart that the Catholic Church hasn't thought about before. Now, you may not always like the answer that you get. And so, you know, even faithful Catholics don't always like the answer that they get. And so that requires prayer, that requires, you know, a kind of humility, that requires um, sometimes just living with something difficult. But, um, but, but, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just because like you, you know, coming from a Protestant background, they're you really do kind of feel like these things are just, yes, there's the Bible and that's kind of the ancient authority. Uh, but, but there's not really anything else in between, you know, it's sort of like the guy today who's interpreting, if he doesn't have the answer, well then who does it? it maybe there isn't one, but of course there are answers. Of course there are. Yeah. And I, I remember just discovering the catechism and how ignorant I was thinking that, yeah, like you said, the Bible was, was written. It was kind of left there. And then we've just kind of taught from that ever since. This pastor on Sunday morning just teaches from the Bible and augments it with different theologians. And of course, he's bringing his own perspective, which again was kind of shocking for me because there was all these other perspectives. But the church, meanwhile, the, the Catholic church all along has been over here doing this thing, thinking through these ideas and and writing things down and collecting it together eventually in in the catechism that we're given. There is such a different way of reading the Bible and of doing theology and of believing as a Christian than what I experienced as an evangelical with just kind of opening the Bible and almost in so many cases, just reinterpreting things brand new with every new teaching series I would experience during that in that uh, church setting, right? Where there was a different way of doing that to draw on this ancient Catholic tradition. And then not just to draw on that and take what you will from there to augment, say, good teaching. I remember when my when I became Catholic and my wife shortly after became Catholic as well. Prior to that journey, uh, our our pastor of our non-denominational church, he was a fantastic man. Uh, um, he was very important in both of our faith journeys uh, as evangelicals. He, he would quote more often than not. He began to draw on a lot of Catholic authors into into his sermons, and I think it was kind of a nod or a wink to uh, to me and my journey because he knew what I was thinking and going. And that's that's great to draw from that tradition, but it's different to just to draw from that tradition than to actually enter into that tradition and affirm all those things of that tradition. And I think this is often where, where you get to in the Anglo-Catholic world, maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, but you draw on certain aspects of patristics or certain aspects of, of the teaching of the Catholic Church, but you can't ever affirm all of that because... What else comes with that tradition that you're drawing from? What else comes with those teachings you're, that you're drawing from, right? Irenaeus speaks 
very well about certain aspects of, of Orthodox Catholic Christian teaching, but he also speaks against people who aren't in union with the bishop as he is in, in that place, who, who then pass on that authority to somebody else. Right? Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I, I listened to your to your podcast with Father James Bradley, who who is a wonderful wonderful man and priest and teacher, and uh, I, I was really struck by one thing that he said that that it really resonated with me, and it's the kind of thing that kind of makes our friends who are still Anglicans and still Episcopalians sort of upset at us sometimes. But um, what he said was, you know that, uh, you know, in this Anglo-Catholic church where he was serving, they had all of these, you know, lamps in the sanctuary, they had eastward facing altar, they had, you know, all of these sort of like old Catholic trappings, you know, but then, and I, I may be putting words in his mouth, you can just call these my words, but, but there was some sense in which it was, it was like playing church. It was sort of like playing, it, it had a kind of pretense to it. And, um, and I say that very, very carefully because I don't, because again, I really, I believe very strongly that um, my ministry in the Episcopal Church was not nothing. It was not nothing, right? The Every time I presumed to, um, to stand at the altar, uh, I wasn't giving my people the body of Christ according to the, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church, but I wasn't giving them poison either. I was giving them some kind of unidentified manna. I mean, it was, it was, it was not nothing. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of us who have sort of come through the kind of Anglo Catholic side of, um, of Anglicanism really come to see that there's a kind of pretense about it that, um, that isn't just going to sustain over the long run. Um, and, and funnily enough, in my experience anyway, I know this wasn't the case, case for Father James Bradley, but a lot of people who end up in Anglo-Catholic circles are people who, like me, had been Protestants or evangelicals before that. And so, you know, some, nowadays my friends and I who, who um, you know, I'm connected to a lot of other um, Anglicans and Episcopalians who come into full communion with the Catholic Church. And, you know, one of the things, especially us former clergy, that we joke about is um, that Episcopal and Anglican bishops probably don't have anything to worry about from lifelong Anglicans, for the most part, even high church ones. But boy, nowadays, if I were a bishop in the Episcopal Church or somewhere in the Anglican Communion, and there was a young man who was seeking ordination from me, and I saw that he had come through various evangelical traditions and was had a really keen mind for the fathers and theology and that sort of thing— I would, it's all but guaranteed that he's going to become a Roman Catholic. I mean, I, I hate to put it that way because it's not, it's not absolutely guaranteed. And I hope I don't put anybody off by saying that. But um, it's, it's just there's such a pull towards, you know, towards living in that reality that you can see with so many of these guys who are on that journey. Yeah, I think, I think the same thing can be said, a similar thing can be said with people who begin to look into the early church in a non-denominational evangelical context, I can think of a lot of people that I know who began to question decisions that were made in their denomination or their non-denominational church, for example, that, you know, again, that question of authority comes up, right? The question of authority. And then if you begin to ask questions about authority, you begin to realize that, well, the Bible is an authority, but then we're all putting ourselves as authorities over that to interpret it. And then oftentimes, I've seen this in so many cases, the turn is then, well, then let's try and live like the early church. And so you begin to adopt things like the lectionary or adopt things like, um, 
the divine office, like morning or evening prayers, these kind of things, you begin to be- become a bit more liturgical, even as a non-denominational church. But that then begins to lead to, well, what else does uh, the early church look like? And what else does the early church talk about? And you begin to go down this road of, as you approach the early church, I mean, Newman said this famously, right? To become deep in history is to cease to become Protestant because as you begin to adopt those practices of the early church, you begin to realize that the early church didn't just do practices. They also had this robust theology that underpinned those practices, I think. All of those things that you're talking about to me are extremely encouraging. And it may not, you know, it may not all bear fruit in this generation or the next or something like that. But I I do think that this, you know, this impulse of grace for unity and for Catholicity is is very palpable even among evangelical communities now. And some of the most some of the most prominent ones are, are people who are talking about liturgy. And I actually think it's almost game over when when some of these groups start talking about how they should worship, for example. Like even just kind of like raising that issue is going to lead you right to the church. Um, so I, I'm very encouraged. And look, and I don't want to I don't want people to uh, you know, to, to feel bad thinking like I'm, or, or that I'm being patronizing to them, like, oh, you'll be a Catholic one day or something like that. But, but that is my hope. That is what I'm praying for. And I believe it's what we should be praying for. I know that it, it won't happen to every single person that I hope will come into the church um, in my lifetime, but uh, it, it is my hope. It really is. Yeah. I, I, it's so important to underscore, and I appreciate that you do that. There because the impulse is for us as converts to say, hey, guys, look what's over here. Look how else you can do this. Come in and do this. And it does, it can rub people the wrong way and sound patronizing. I, I had an almost two-hour discussion with two former uh, evangelicals. One was a pastor for 22 years talking about uh, sola scriptura or the authority of the Bible and how we wrestle with that, how we wrestled with that. And it became a very passionate discussion. But for us, it was passionate because we found a different way of doing this and not only different, but ancient and standing in this long tradition of things. And of course we want to welcome more people into that. It's not, it's it. And maybe it does sound patronizing, but it's, it's entering into a patrimony that has is important to is, is a fuller thing, right? This is off the top of our interview. We talked about the idea of a, of a fullness here. This is a more full thing you're entering into. I wonder as we close, I have one more question for you. And I wonder if we can speak to those people who were in where in in the shoes that you used to fill as an Episcopal priest in the Anglican tradition, kind of looking towards Rome. I mean, you mentioned kind of er, even earlier on in your journey, you realized that you had to kind of look somewhere for this authority, and the Pope kind of seemed like he might be the guy that has things has, has something to say on this. What would you say to somebody who was in your shoes, who's listening and has the same questions that you had, I mean, what would you, what would you say? What would you want to say to somebody like that? Well, you know, in my own experience, uh, as far back as, well, many years back, I was struggling with a lot of these things, a lot of these issues about whether to come into full communion with the church, but it was probably around 2015 that I was feeling like I was, I was beginning to approach a crisis point. And I remember talking to a Catholic priest who was a former Anglican priest and, um, someone, a wonderful priest, to be sure, but it was the exact wrong conversation for me to have at that time, because he was so enthusiastic about being a Catholic, about being a Catholic priest, that he scared me, that he scared me off. 
you know, his enthusiasm was so was so great that, you know, he couldn't almost help himself saying, like, look, the Catholic Church is true. Everything she teaches is true. It's you just you have to be a Catholic. Your soul's in peril if, if like you are where you are and you don't just decide to make that leap. You know, well, it, it didn't work out at that moment. It was the wrong conversation to have at that time. But seeds were more seeds were planted there that had been planted before. You know, for my part, I, I really try to try to stress this, you know, identifying that if you are an Episcopalian or an Anglican or a Protestant or whatever, that you already have a lot of gifts that the church identifies and that in a real way you are no stranger to the church and that you are connected in a real way to the beating heart of the Catholic church. And that, that, that there just is this, this greater invitation uh, for you, you know? So I just really like to, to frame it in, in those terms. I also like, you know, to, to point, I can point to myself, but to a lot of other people that I know who, uh, who have, who have made big sacrifices to, to just be able to say, you know what, I believe that I believe the Catholic Church is where I'm supposed to be, and whatever it takes, I'm going to go ahead and make that leap. Because you know, especially if you're clergy, you have so many practical considerations. You know, as, as an Episcopal priest, I had a good salary, I had a great pension to look forward to, and all of that. And I just, but I just couldn't take it. I mean, I, it, it was the the call was so strong that I had to to go ahead and convert, which which resulted in six months of unemployment for me, uh, which was extremely difficult for me and for my family. But I'm grateful for that time because I'm able to say to other people, hey, look, I really hope that your situation is going to be as difficult as mine was. But even if it is, a lot of people have been there. We've been where you are. And trust me, it's going to be okay. Because if you obey the Lord, he's not going to he's not going to strand you. He's not going to leave you hanging. So, you know, that's what I would say to people who are who are in that boat um, and and just continue to pray and um you know, continue to to assemble resources and to know about, you know, books to put in people's hands or documents that they ought to take a look at that, again, aren't necessarily going to be a slam dunk, but could be a part of this like bigger picture of what the Lord is doing and how he's pouring out his grace on people who he's calling into the church. <laughs> Very well said. Andrew, this has been a fantastic conversation. I think listeners are going to love it. Uh, where can they go to find out more about what you're doing to follow you and uh, your work? Well, I'm working now for Word on Fire. So you can always, um, you can find my blog posts and some other work that I do at the Word on Fire website. I also have a personal website, andrewpettiprin.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, and uh, I, I have a book called Truth Matters, Knowing God and Yourself, which you can buy uh, anywhere you buy your books. So I hope you'll check that out. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to say God bless you. God bless your family, your fantastic ministry. And uh, thank you so much for sharing some time with us. Thanks, Keith. God bless. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andrew Pettiprin. Make sure to check out the show notes for this show at thecordialcatholic.com. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and please do send your feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you think of this show and of that fantastic conversation. It was a great one. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever you find it. Please leave a rating or review if you can. Those help to push the show out to new people. Your reviews on Apple, on Podbean, wherever you find it, those help new people to discover this show. 
I really appreciate that. Please tell a friend too. Word of mouth is a great way to share this show. If you think that somebody would benefit from hearing this interview, maybe you know an Episcopalian or Anglican priest or somebody on that journey, send them the link and let them have a listen. I love that. And that's the whole point and purpose of this show to help fill in those gaps and to help dispel some misinformation and misunderstanding. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing. TheCordialCatholic.com is the website. I (laughs) mentioned that. Patreon.com slash The Cordial Catholic for financial support or PayPal.me slash Cordial Catholic for one-time donations. I'm praying for you guys. Please pray for me too and see you again next week. Thank you so much for listening. God bless, guys. Thanks. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.